Jude consists of only 25 verses, and we have in time, a couple of years ago, walked through each verse, looking at, at each one. My intent this morning is not to retrace all of those steps, but I do want to cover the entire book, but I'm going to do it in large sections, so Lord willing, we can gather what we need to from it this morning. I'm not going to read the entire book either, but I will read several, several verses as we come to them. This is an important epistle. Don't be fooled by its brevity. It's very practical. It's very helpful. It teaches us certain things about the faith that we do well to heed even in our own day. This was especially true in the life and the day of Jude, but nothing has changed so much. Sometimes I think we are under the delusion that in the early church everything was perfect. Everything was going well. It didn't take long, even in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the history of the early church, for problems to arise. And every epistle addresses some type of problem, be it a practical problem or a doctrinal problem. Jude is no different. He does both. He helps us to think rightly and thereby act rightly. And it's always in that order. Once our minds are renewed by the scriptures, we begin to think God's own thoughts after him. Then and only then can we begin to live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to him. So I want to divide this book up into four different parts, all of them concerning different aspects of the Christian faith, the faith that we hold. There is in this short epistle a call of Jude, an exhortation to contend for the faith. There is here in this epistle of Jude a call to persevere in the faith, to keep on. There is in this book a call of Jude to build yourself up on your most holy faith. And then there is the great blessing or doxology with which Jude concludes this short epistle that reminds us all the while, while we are contending, pressing on, and building ourselves up in the faith, that we are being kept in all of this by Christ. He is preserving us. That's the great comfort of this book. Let me deal with a a few preliminary things before we really get involved Who was Jude? Might be some debate on that, but most consider Jude to be the half-brother of the Lord, the one who, while Jesus was ministering on earth, did not believe in him. But after his ascension, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, at some point he came to faith. Most would see it as an act of great humility on Jude's part not to declare himself to be a brother of Jesus Christ, only a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James whose name would have been well known in the early church. He writes to those who have been blessed of God in these three ways. And in this, he very much mirrors the apostle Paul, but uses some different words. He says to those who are called sanctified by God, the father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Before we go any further, 
I want you to put your eyes on those words on the page. And if you were here this morning trusting in Christ, if you are here believing his gospel, these words are true definitions of you. You are called of God. You are sanctified by God the Father, set apart unto his own service, in that because he has borne you anew. You have been regenerated, sanctified, different. You are now his own special people who were once not a people, but yet Jude also says that we are preserved in Jesus Christ. What an especially precious doctrine that is when we live in a world that assaults Christianity on every side. Calls into question the truths that we hold so dear and not just questions them, but berates them. Sees them as not only being unnecessary, but spiteful and hateful. Beloved, be reminded that you are preserved in Jesus Christ. Nothing will touch you that he does not allow. Nothing will make its way into your life that is ultimately going to take your life. And there I'm not speaking physically at all. Many of our brethren have died physical deaths because of their stand for Jesus Christ. But rest assured, they now make up the train that will follow him in his return to earth. They have forever and always will be preserved, just as I, just as you. These are the ones to whom Jude writes, and he gives a blessing of sorts. And in this, he deviates a bit from Paul's words when he says, mercy. Paul's often refrain is grace at the beginning and the end of his epistles. But Jude here is asking for the mercy of God to be dispensed to the people of God. And I think we do well to consider that grace is nothing more than the effect of God being merciful. You might say it this way, and others have said it this way. Mercy is the fountain from which grace springs. God has pitied us in our fallen condition, and it moved him to be merciful. Remember the children of Israel suffering in slavery and bondage under the Egyptians. God heard their cry. He visited them and acted towards them in mercy. His mercy to us did not, did not come in us physically crossing dry land where there was once water. His mercy to us is far more miraculous than that even. His mercy to us is that he has given us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and that which was once dead now lives. That which was once enslaved not by other other members of mankind but enslaved by sinfulness, we've now been set free. We have been the recipients of mercy which has resulted in peace. And then he says, love be multiplied. To you. So we've dealt with just a bit of the precursors here, but let me get to the first point. If you're a note taker, an exhortation to contend for the faith. It's found in verse 3 where Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary 
to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice the tension that was residing in Jude's heart. Jude uses a word here in the first of verse 3. says, I was very diligent. There was an inward compelling in Jude. He wanted to write a letter. Most likely, he calls it concerning our common salvation. He wanted to write a letter that would most likely have extolled the virtues of Jesus Christ, that would have extolled the virtues of the gospel, that would have been so encouraging to the people. That's the letter that he wanted to write. But he says, necessity overcame. There was something within this church. Now, granted, this was not addressed to a specific church. It is addressed simply to those called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ. And in that sense, it is addressed to us just as well as anyone throughout church history. But he says, I found it necessary. So I've termed this for my own sake, a compelled necessity. Jude was modeling for us the very thing that he is calling us to do. In this letter, he is doing nothing more than contending earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The very same thing he calls us to do, what we need to be reminded of is the same necessity rests upon us as did upon he. Truth is always under assault. There is always a war against the truth of the living God. You and I are called to contend for the faith. Notice he uses the word, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. This word could be just as rightly and faithfully translated as admonishing you. That carries a little different connotation. Exhorting the word basically means to come alongside. In its proper sense, it's used to refer to the Spirit of God who has come alongside of us as believers. But here we see just the other nuance of the word. This is a a stern call to action by Jude. And it's in a a sense, Jude is coming alongside of believers, encouraging them, compelling them to join in to this struggle. The word contend here speaks to a maintained zeal, something that we do not grow cold in. One person has said, it is through various contests of the faith that we finally gain entrance into the promised land. Various contests must be encountered and continual warfare maintained. After all, aren't we as the church on earth, the true church of God on earth, referred to as the church militant and not the church triumphant? The church triumphant is comprised of those saints of God that have gone on to be, gone on to glory. The church militant consists of me and you, believers on earth who are contending earnestly for the faith. 
And I say this in the most positive sense of the word. We are to be contentious Christians. Please understand the way that I'm using that. I'm not saying that you are to be or I am to be an obnoxious defender of the faith. But we are to be contentious in the fact that we are contending for the faith. We are to do so winsomely, yet not cowardly. We are to do so, as Paul told us in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. Oftentimes, it will prove true in your life. The person that loves you the most is the person that is most willing to speak the truth to you. The person who is, has a great concern for your soul, for your life, personally, your family, or whomever is the one who in great fear and trembling oftentimes will come to you and say, brother or sister, this is the truth that you need to hear. Biblically, they will have first considered themselves, according to Paul in Galatians 6, lest they fall into the same trouble, lest they fall into the same sin. But take it as a great mercy of God if there is someone in your life who will look you in the eye and love you enough to tell you the truth. What they are doing is contending earnestly for the faith. Once for all delivered. When Jude says contend earnestly for the faith, he has in mind here not a personal faith that saves. He's not saying that we have to contend to keep the faith in that way. We're going to see why later as he closes out this book. We believe that once the blood of Christ is applied to us by faith, it remains, it abides, it stays. No one can snatch us out of the hand of the Father. The righteousness of Christ once given cannot be revoked. If it is given in truth, if it, is, if it comes by faith, then it is yours forever. Jude is not saying you must contend for that. He is saying that we must contend you can think of it this way, for the body of faith that has been given to us. And let me give you a quote here specifically. This comes out of the Reformation Study Bible. Christianity includes an authoritative body of belief given by God to the church through the apostles. Together with the Old Testament, this, apost this apostolic witness as found in the New Testament, is the standard for the church. That is why Paul would write to Timothy that the church is both the pillar and the ground of the truth. It is for this body of doctrine, this body of belief, that you and I as Christians are to contend. For which we are to war. That may sound strange in your ear. But it's the word that Jude uses. We are to do battle for the truth. We are not to stand idly by as the truth of the living God expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is trampled upon and not defended. Sometimes contending for the faith is just as simple as opening your mouth and declaring the truth. In the face of opposition, I realize none of us readily want to sign up for that kind of confrontation or for that kind of conversation, but it may very well be what the Lord places you in. But remember to act winsomely, to do it in love and sincerity, not in harshness, 
contending for the faith. We've got great examples. We've got great examples of men like Paul and Jude, even Christ in the New Testament. The reason that we're called to contend for the faith is given in the fourth verse. Jude says there are certain men who have crept in unnoticed. The word crept in here means very low. It means some have translated this have have crawled in on their bellies trying to subvert faith. They have crawled in unnoticed. Now, take note of this. Not only here, but a little later in verse 14, Jude makes known that these men were long ago marked out for condemnation. And what this tells us is that it has pleased God to try and refine His church through the ages by making them subject to error and false teaching. Would it have been within the scope of God's ability to preserve His church pure and strike down at the door anyone that would come in with falsehood? Absolutely. God could have done that if He had so chosen But from Jude's words here, notice, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Skip over to verse 14 where he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Enoch was pre-flood. The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. And he said, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. On all, to convict all who, notice the repeated use of ungodly, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So in two places, Jude says, this is well known To the Lord, he marked them out long ago, and even Enoch, only seven generations from the first man, prophesied that these men would come. So to repeat this truth, it has pleased the Lord. In his wisdom, he makes us as his people subject to hearing error, subject to false teachers to refine and to try us. To grow us up mature in the faith that we may be strong. Not weak and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So we recognize the purposes of the Lord as he makes them known. These men, these certain men that Jude writes about from verse From this fourth verse all the way through the 16th verse. Notice how he describes them again. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Thus their condemnation. Thus their judgment. Because of their attempts to lead the people of God astray. 
There are two accusations made back in verse 4 against these certain ungodly men. Two things that they attempt. Notice in verse 4, the end, who turn the grace of God into lewdness. All that means is that they turn the grace of God into license to sin. That's the whole reason why Paul asks the question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? He knew, the Spirit of God knew, there would be those who abuse grace and see it as their license to sin. The thinking, as absurd as it sounds to our ears, goes something like this. If God is glorified in forgiving sin, then the more I sin, the more He is glorified in forgiving it. Absurd, right? But yet, Paul has to ask that question and then give answer to it. God forbid, may it never be. The accusation of Jude, these ungodly men who have crept in on their bellies unnoticed, who are marked out for condemnation, are doing this very thing. They are subverting the grace of God and presenting it as license to sin. But that's not all they do. Notice where it leads. They deny the only Lord, the only Lord God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now understand that rightly. They are denying the Lordship Of Jesus Christ over his church. They are, the text couldn't read any more plain, and deny the only Lord. You'll notice your Bible, some of the the notations there say that God is in this text not found in other manuscripts. So if we read it in that way, they are denying the only Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now we see why they have been marked out for condemnation. And then really what serves as the heart of Jude's letter is found in the examples that he gives of those who have been delivered from Egyptian slavery, the angels, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice in verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this. We're going to come back to that phrase in a moment. But he wants them to remember the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So let's just get that in our minds the way it should be. God gave a great, miraculous deliverance to his people, bringing them out of Egypt. Ten plagues he enacted upon the Egyptians. Finally, Pharaoh, in a moment of persuasion of God, let them go. He quickly changed his mind and pursued them. Those very people who saw with their own eyes a great deliverance of God were the same ones just a few hours later murmuring, grumbling, and complaining against the Lord. And Jude says, you once knew this, the very same ones whom the Lord saved out of Egypt are the ones he destroyed later. Why? Because of unbelief. What about the angels? Verse 6. The scripture speaks of both elect angels and fallen angels. 
the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Think again, just like that people that walked across on dry ground, but yet were found in unbelief. These angels created holy by God with great privilege to see things you and I will only see in glory fell in with Lucifer, the serpent, and in doing so, transgressed the very reason for which they were created, and now they are reserved in darkness. The comparison is striking, right? Israel, given great advantage. The angels, given great advantage. Both, or the first, unbelieving The second, just flat out rebellious. And then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know well the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example. Suffering the vengeance of fire. I intentionally left out a word. Because some would only read the temporary destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as fire and brimstone. But Jude here, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says that they are suffering as an example. Notice that word. They are a type, an example of those who transgress God's clear commands and suffer the eternal consequence of fire. All of these can be summarized. All three of these examples, you and I do well to heed and see the danger in being in contempt of grace. We know what it means to be in contempt of court, right? Someone who is under a judge's authority, acting out in a rebellious way, making accusation against the judge of unfairness or whatever it may be, disrupting the court, then being declared in contempt of court and very often ushered outside of the court. What does it mean to be in contempt of grace? It means to have experienced grace. Example, walking across the sea, walking across dry ground where there was once sea. The second example being rebellious against God for your original creation, the angels, the same as Sodom and Gomorrah, they were in contempt of grace. They, in a sense, despised the grace of God and took advantage of it and were utterly destroyed. God forbid that any of us be in contempt of grace. If you sit here this morning, you are as we spoke of last week, under one of two different types of grace of God, either just a common grace that gave you breath to get up and be here or his saving grace that has given you the same but also covered you in the blood of Christ. My exhortation and warning to you is not to leave here in contempt of grace, not to leave here taking advantage of the grace God had given. And just like those Israelites that made it across afterwards because of unbelief, God destroyed them. These certain men that crept in on their bellies, Jude also refers to them as being vainly ostentatious. 
He says that they are like clouds with no water. That they are like trees with no fruit. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It's found in verses 12 and 13. You and I are to contend for the faith against such men. And we are to do so with the help of the Spirit of God. And very often God will take a weak person like me and you and use you in ways that you never dreamt. To contend earnestly for the truth that He has made known. So that's the first point of faith that Jude makes. We are to contend for the faith. The second that he makes, and this one shorter, is to persevere in the faith. Go back with me to verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, A very simple point can here be made. Belief untended very often fades into unbelief. I'm not saying there that one truly saved can lose their salvation. But what I am referring to, if you remember the parable of the soils or the sower... There were those who made a good start, sprung up, but the cares of the world choked them out. Belief left untended very often fades into unbelief. For some reason, many have the notion that faith does not need to be cultivated or maintained. Can you apply that same logic to anything else in your life? Can you apply that to your closest relationship if you're married, your husband and wife or parent-child? Can you apply that same logic that that relationship never needs tending, never needs cultivating? What about your work? Does your work ever need to be cultivated and sustained? Do you need to sharpen your abilities? Of course you do. Faith is very much the same. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to be tended. It needs to be well kept. It needs to be kept vibrant and living and active. And if you're wondering here about the security of the believer, then stay tuned. We're going to come to that later. So the second point I told you was going to be quick, and it was, right? Persevere in the faith. The third, not only are we to contend for the faith, to persevere in the faith, but we are to build up on the foundation of faith. That's in verse 20. 
He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And notice here, faith in Christ is the foundation for all contending for the faith. Faith in Christ is the foundation for persevering in the faith, obviously. And then Jude does for us what we all want him to do. We all want people to to lay things out so clear for us that they're unmistakable, right? If someone asks you to do something for them, if they leave that request sort of shrouded in vagueness, isn't it frustrating? But if someone comes and asks you, I would like for you to do this for me, and here's how I would like you to do it. Do this first, then this second, and this third. That's the way most of us are wired. I understand that. That's the way that I am wired. Apparently, that's the way Jude was wired as well. Because when he says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, then he goes to answer the obvious question. The obvious question being, how do I build myself up on my most holy faith? This is an action that I think every true Christian would love to do in their own life. All of us want to be built up. The word here is edified. We want to be stronger tomorrow than we are today. We want to understand more tomorrow than we do today. We want the winds of false doctrine to affect us less tomorrow than they affect us today. We want to know more about Jesus Christ tomorrow than we do today. How do we do it? How do we do it? No coincidence that Jude said, Jude, first of all, says praying in the Holy Spirit. And I don't for a moment take this to be some vague instruction concerning speaking or praying in tongues. To pray in the Holy Spirit is nothing more than to pray in accordance to the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of you, as Romans chapter 8 says, in some of those hard details of life where we just have to go before the Lord and say, I don't know what to pray here. I love this person. I want their best, but I don't know how to pray for them. Or I don't know how to pray for myself. You know what's going on in my life. It is in those moments where the Spirit of God groans with words that cannot be uttered for us. We are praying in that way in the Spirit. But even in a lesser way, to pray in in the Spirit is to pray in accord with the Spirit. You've probably had conversations like this. Maybe you have this conversation privately in your own mind. I have people from time to time come and tell me, I feel like the Lord would have me do this or that. And very obviously it might transgress some clear command of Scripture. Case in point, a man comes to me and say, I feel like the Lord would have me divorce my wife. All I can do at that point is scratch my head. Why would you say that? That would be a clear transgression of a command of God. To pray in the Holy Spirit is to pray in accordance with the Word of God as best we can. And then in those times when we are perplexed, which is very often 
we trust the Spirit of God even then to come alongside of us and help us with words that cannot be uttered. So that's the first. How do you build yourself up on your most holy faith? Well, you pray. Obvious. But you know from experience, if you're honest with yourself, that prayer is one of the most difficult things to stay consistent in because it's the most spiritual thing that you do. And we know that we war not against flesh and blood, but, but against that unseen realm that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 6. Everything that is the adversary of Christ is the adversary of your real praying. You have to fight through it. Asking for help all the way. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, don't despair at this point. Don't despair here because the news is going to turn in just a moment. But this is an aspect. This refers to your responsibility as a Christian. And please realize you have some. In your walk of faith, there is responsibility that's placed on you. I understand sanctification is something that Jude has already said happens by action of God the Father. You have been sanctified by God the Father in verse 1. But notice you are an active agent in your own sanctification as well. So when he says keep yourselves in the love of God... I think we do well to recognize a few things here. And even in this sub point, we can ask the question, how do I keep myself in the love of God? My simple answer to that is use the means that he has given. You'll oftentimes hear these referred to as the means of grace. What are those? Prayer, reading the scripture, fellowshipping with the saints, observing the sacraments, the ordinances. Avoiding or deeming the means of grace unnecessary is a great, great folly for a Christian. Very often, the Christian who argues, I can be a Christian at home by myself, is a very immature Christian. I'm not saying he's not a Christian, but I'm saying he's immature and needs great instruction. Because you cannot turn to chapter and verse in the scriptures and find ground for that kind of thinking. What you will find is if you love Christ, you love his church. That's everywhere. What you will find is if you love Christ, you'll love his people. That's everywhere. What you will find is if you love Christ, you'll forbear with all of those people in the church and they'll forbear with you. That's what we find. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But it also, one aspect of building yourselves up on your most holy faith is to not let hope dissipate. Notice The last of this, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Have the right perspective. 
Don't let the affairs and circumstances of this life so cloud your vision that you begin to see everything as being absorbed in this stuff that's reserved for fire. That is quickly vanishing and fading away. Do not love the world, John would write, because the world is passing away. So do not let your hope of Christ's return and the mercy that will be yours at his return dissipate. Continue to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then last, we're still speaking about how to build yourself up on your most holy faith. Be useful to others. And that's not just my Worldly wisdom speaking. I think that's the heart of what Jude is saying in verse 22. We all know that a drowning man cannot save another drowning man. But one whose feet is firmly upon the rock can pull someone out of the clutches of death. That's what Jude is referring to, I believe, here in verse 22. He says, on some have compassion, making a distinction. I realize there may be a notation in your Bible that gives an alternate reading for that phrase, but I'm going to stick with it as it is here in the New King James, making a distinction. And the distinction that is to be made are between those who need gentle counsel, those Christians who are straying from God, straying from the faith, who need gentle counsel and will respond best to gentle counsel. Be compassionate to them. They're just like you. They're prone to fall into sin. Be helpful to those kind of people. Not in arrogance. No one wants an arrogant Christian coming to them and telling them how to do something. But very often a wise person will take instruction from a sincere Christian who comes to them in love. The distinction that Jude is referring to here, he says there are others. Gentle counsel and compassion just will not work. Others must be pulled or the word is snatched out of the fire. Some straying Christians need Harsh rebuke. God give wisdom. God give grace. God give mercy if you were called to be that voice. But there again, if there is true faith residing in that heart, if the Holy Spirit of God is there, what we've read in the book of Proverbs is that man, he will receive counsel. But sometimes it must come in the form of great harshness, authority, but with Underlying all of that, a great concern and desire for their salvation or for their repentance. On some have compassion. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So concerning faith, so far Jude has said, contend for it, persevere in it. Build yourselves up on it. Subpoints from that. How do I build myself up? Well, I pray. 
I keep myself in the love of God using the means that he has given to do so. I do not let hope dissipate, but I look for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and to eternal life. And I become in some measure useful to those around me. Because we're all in this together after all. Now we get down to verse 24 and 25, which is a doxology, a praise to God. Here is where we find the real abiding security of the one who is in Christ. Considering everything that he has just said, and and obviously Jude would have known, he said some hard things. He's asked for hard things. That leads him down to verse 24. Now to him who is able. Don't miss that word. This is a great word of description of who God is. He is able. He has all power to him who is able to keep you. Now, you might say, wait, Jude, didn't you just tell me to keep myself? And if Jude were here, he would shake his head like this. Yes, I did just tell you that. You do have responsibility, but ultimately, over all of that, there is one who is able to keep you from stumbling. And I think we best understand that as stumbling eternally. Not that you won't trip up and and fail in life, but that ultimately you will not fall away. Because if you would, if you could, you would. You just need to settle that fact in your mind. If you could fall away from Christ, you would. But you can't. Not by your own strength, but because of the truth of this verse. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and get this, and to present you faultless. There was a point in time where Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, felt like he was the chief of sinners. I'm sure every believer has at some point in time felt like they were the chief of sinners. And what Jude says here is he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. And these great truths of the keeping power of God, Jude concludes by saying, To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. To summarize what Jude says again very quickly. Contend for the faith, persevere in the faith, build yourselves up in the faith, all, all while knowing you are being kept. You are being preserved. These are truths that are only applicable to the believer in Christ. Only to the one who, through faith, has come to Christ and has been born again, who has been regenerated, justified, all of these great words that we use. So let me conclude 
with just this statement. I mentioned earlier being in contempt of grace. I plead with you. Don't leave here in contempt. There's no need. There's no need to leave here spurning the grace of God again. Come to Christ. He will receive you. And His people will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word given to us today through Jude, preserved for us. Lord, give us ears to hear it. Lord, I pray that there would be none who take advantage of this day of grace, this day of salvation. Lord, you tell us very plainly in the Scriptures that human life is frail, it is uncertain, and in that it's very different and contrasts greatly to the eternal life you've given us, which is steadfast and sure. Lord, I pray you would impress upon the youngest here, upon the youngest of whom you have given the ability to reason these things out, that you would impress impress upon them their great need to come to Christ now, today. We pray you would draw them with cords of love, that you would make willing in the day of your power and that you would receive the honor and the glory for it in this great work of salvation. We are thankful for the faith that you have given us. Help us to contend for it, to persevere in it, to build ourselves up on it all while knowing that you are keeping us We pray in Christ's name, amen.